This morning, we are again looking at the subject of godly grieving from the book of Lamentations. This is part five. And today we want to look at chapter three. Two weeks ago, chapter one ended with Judah pleading with the Lord to pay back Babylon, her oppressor, for the sufferings and afflictions brought through her by the Lord's hand. Last week, chapter two ended with Judah's less than stellar appeal to the Lord over her afflictions. Judah's sufferings were due to her rebellion and her covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord. In contrast, for example, with Job, whose sufferings were never explained to him, uh, we at least know his sufferings were not a direct result of his being a rebel or an idolater against the Lord. Do you ever think about your own sufferings in life and how much of those sufferings are due to your own personal sin? Today, we want to look at three things. Number one, how the lamenter identifies and sympathizes with Judah and her sufferings, and how he actually improves upon her attempt at grieving in a godly way over the destruction the Lord brought against their sins. And we see this in verses 1 through 20. Second, we want to see how the lamenter leads himself and Judah, and, and us for that matter, uh, to find hope and comfort in the Lord in the midst of suffering. And we see this in verses 21 through 42. These verses in particular are central to chapter 3 and central to the book of, uh, of Lamentations, and the subject matter of verses 21 through 42 are actually central to the scriptures. The third thing we want to see is how the lamenter prays to the Lord and actually hears from the Lord and finds confidence in the Lord once again. And uh, these uh, subjects are taken up in verses 43 through 66. Chapter 3, like chapters 1 and 2, is an acrostic poem. Uh, but unlike those chapters, each letter in the Hebrew alphabet is represented three times in a row in chapter 3. That is to say, verses 1, 2, and 3 each begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verses 4, 5, and 6 each begin with the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And this pattern continues through the entire alphabet in order uh, for 66 verses. This chapter is really not much longer, however, than chapter 2. Uh, each verse in chapter 2 has three lines, whereas each um, of chapter 3's verses have roughly one line. Uh, let's look at the first 20 verses, um, which show the lamenter again improving upon Judah's attempt at grieving in a godly way over the destruction the Lord brought against her for her sins. 
In these verses, he identifies and sympathizes with Judah and her sufferings. And he sees himself as someone personally involved in that same suffering with them. Uh, these verses, just before we read them, uh, must be uh, read in light of the Lamenter's words in chapter 2, verse 17 through 19. Uh, there, if you turn over there, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, uh, there um, he, he vindicates the Lord's actions against Judah because the Lord did exactly what he said he would if his people were persistently unfaithful to him and refused to repent of their sins. And verses 18 and 19 urge Judah to plead with the Lord over their circumstances, their sufferings. And unfortunately, she fails to get through to the Lord. Uh, and, then, and then now the lamenter raises his voice in chapter 3 as he leads Judah and us to hope in the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones he has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten with what good is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. These verses are, are, are difficult. And um, they, they nag at the human heart. They're heartbreaking. 
because they leave uh, uh, you, the hearer, with the question, what on earth do you do when all the evidence supports the conclusion that the Lord himself is against you? You look through these verses again, and, and this man is under attack, and, and his attacker is the Lord. The Lord is repeatedly given as the subject who is bringing the bad against Judah, against the lamenter. So much so that he says in verse 17 that he has forgotten what good is. The Lord is seen in verses 10 as a bear, as a lion, ripping Judah open, ripping Judah to pieces. He's seen in verse 12 as an archer who makes Judah his target. And as one author says, he hits the bullseye. Judah has become a laughing stock. And these verses Judah is confined, and, and no prayer gets through. That's what the lamenter says in verses 7 through 9. Well, what do you do when all the evidence supports the conclusion that the Lord himself is against you? Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now that's a that's a very hopeful thing. That, that's that's a that's a word that's full of hope and full of confidence. If God's on our side, who can be against us? Nobody can succeed against us. But what do you do when all of your experience clearly suggests that the Lord is not for you, but rather he is against you? What happens when all the promises of God seem forfeited by your sins and by your sufferings? As verses 18 through 20 in chapter 3 uh, say, in verse 18 it says that his endurance, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives hope. The Lord is the one who gives strength. He gives joy. But here he's saying that the joy, the strength, from the Lord, the hope from the Lord, it's gone. It's dead. It's perished. In verses 19 and uh, 20, he is overwhelmed, remembering the afflictions and his wanderings, the wormwood, the gall, the bitterness of it all. He says, my soul continually remembers. He is overwhelmed. He can't get these thoughts out of his head. His emotions are exhausted with the sufferings that he's enduring from the Lord and the sufferings he sees in the land of Judah. But what do you do when all this happens? When all you can remember is bitterness and suffering and wandering and afflictions and your emotions are exhausted and you're physically and spiritually bowed down, what do you do 
Well, verse 21 is a turning point in this chapter and in this book. And uh, when I read these verses, I want you to hear them because they are, they are powerful in, in, in this context of suffering, of hopelessness, of brokenness, of heartbreaking, heartbrokenness. Um, verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now, now stop right here for a moment. This I call to mind, um, some authors have said that, that the lamenter forces his mind to think about this because, because he's so overwhelmed with suffering, so inundated with afflictions. He has to arrest his thoughts and put them in a forceful manner someplace other than where he is and what he's dealing with. And you have to do the same thing. When suffering overwhelms you, when affliction has got you by the throat, um, this I call to mind. He has to compel his mind to think about something other than what he is presently dealing with. And, and it says, therefore, I have hope. If you don't do this, you will never have hope. Hopelessness will be your lot. And there will be no escaping hopelessness. You won't be able to be cured from it. So this is a must. If you want to experience hope, real hope, genuine hope, this is something that you must do to get there. If you don't do this, forget it. You're done. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, or renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I want to stop there for a moment. Um, this section begins in verse 21 and ends in 42, but we're going to work through incrementally. The steadfast love of the Lord, this is the thing he calls to mind. The unceasing mercies of the Lord, they never end. He calls to mind the gospel. This, this passage has to make you think about uh, that first time that Israel as a whole nation tragically sinned in an idolatrous fashion against the Lord. You remember it happened at the, the foot of Mount Sinai, fresh out of Egypt came through the wilderness, provided for by the Lord. At the foot of Mount Sinai, having heard the voice of the Lord, having seen the, the, the spectacle of the, of the mountain rattling, the thundering, the fire, the lightning, and having heard God himself speak and give his law, 
And then impatience. Because of impatience, the people had Aaron build them an idol and they bowed down and worshipped and committed adultery against their covenant Lord who faithfully came for them, rescued them, upheld them, redeemed them, purchased them. And in view of all of that love, they turned on him and were unfaithful like an adulterous wife. And, and it was in that context that, that Moses threw the law down and broke it and marched back up the mountain to do business with the Lord on Israel's behalf, only to realize that he wasn't the one to do it. But what the Lord did at that moment when Moses went up seeking his glory, seeking the Lord's face, uh, seeking again for the Lord to write down his law, uh, the very first thing that God did in the presence of Moses is it, it said he stood with him there. And, and, and the Lord preached the gospel to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he worshipped and he pleaded with God to forgive, to take Israel as his very own possession, and to go with them. And so this passage in Lamentations draws all of that back into view, that it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that's the only thing that gives us hope in this life. And if you don't have the gospel, you simply don't have hope, period. That's the only thing that will give you hope in the midst of your personal suffering, in the midst of seeing others suffer, the gospel is the only thing that can bring hope to you and through you, hope to others. The steadfast love, and look at what happens in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are renewed every morning. Every single day, they're suffering. There's some kind of affliction, some kind of difficulty, but God's mercies are renewed. They're fresh every morning to deal with every single new affliction and difficulty that you encounter. And, and look at how uh, his, his thinking about the gospel in verses 22 and 23a lead him to spurt out a praise to the Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Now he's begun to talk to the Lord and praise. That's what happens when you think about Jesus, when you think about the gospel, when you think about the blood, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the righteousness of Christ. That's what happens is you, you, it's uncontainable. You begin to worship. You begin to praise. Does that happen to you? Do you meditate on the Word of God, on the Gospel, 
of Jesus Christ in the midst of your suffering. That's the only thing that's going to give you hope. It's the bedrock. It's the foundation for every single thing in life. It leads him from meditating on the gospel, telling himself he calls these things to mind, he preaches the gospel to himself, and um, it leads him to worship. It leads him to praise uh, the Lord. It's got to do the same in your life. And... Um, And then in verse 24, he goes from worshiping the, the Lord to confidence in the Lord. His confidence is coming back. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. His meditation on the gospel, your meditation on the gospel, not only leads to praise, it leads to a settled internal conviction. The Spirit of God stirs up within you a conviction that you're a child of God. The Spirit of God, Romans says, bears witness with your spirit that you are adopted child, that you belong to the Lord. And, and in this passage, which emphasizes that the Lord belongs to you. He is your portion. Anything that you could potentially inherit in life, anything you could potentially ask for or want, doesn't even begin to compare with possessing the Lord as your portion. And, and because of that possession, the lamenter says, therefore, I will hope in him. I'm not going to give up. And you can't give up. No matter how thick the suffering becomes, you can't give up. The Lord is your portion. Therefore, you have to hope in him. In verses 25 through 27, the acrostic structure of the chapter begins a new height. And um, one of the things that we've learned looking at the gospel, someone one time said, just before we read these verses, someone once said, I never knew Jesus was all I needed till Jesus was all I had. Isn't that true? That's what Paul realized. He realized that the, that the grace of Jesus was sufficient. It was more than enough to handle all of the difficulties that he was experiencing. More of Jesus' power is seen the lower you go. His power is perfected in your weakness. The lower you go, the more powerful Jesus is seen and understood to be. The more sufficient, the more practical, the more relevant Jesus becomes, the more you suffer. In verses 25 through 27, as we said, the acrostic reaches a new height. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. 
not only in these verses uh, do you see in the Hebrew the ninth letter of the alphabet beginning each verse, but it's the same word that begins each verse, and that word is tov, which is the Hebrew word for good. So it literally says, good is the Lord to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Good um, for you to wait for the salvation of the Lord. Um, and good uh, for the man to bear the yoke in his youth. Each verse begins with the, the word good. And um, you see, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, who wait patiently and perseveringly for him to act. And this verse calls us to wait for the Lord. Are you an impatient person? Some people say, I'm, I'm only impatient when I have to wait. It takes a humble confidence to wait patiently for the Lord to act and not take matters into your own hands. It takes humility and trust to be patient. And, and, and the Bible says here it's good for those, for you, it's good for you to wait, to be patient and wait for the Lord. And while you wait, not sit there and do nothing, but to seek the Lord, to be prayerful, to be perseverant in prayer as you wait for the Lord. That's a good thing. How are you persevering in prayer in the midst of your suffering? As you see suffering all around you, as you experience suffering, how perseverant are you in prayer? That's a question that, that you need to ask yourself that I need to ask myself. Secondly, it's also good, it says, for um, you to sit quietly and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, it seems to contradict prayer, but it doesn't. It, 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 it's meaning not to be a complainer. It's so easy to complain. You see that in the first two chapters of this, of this, of this book, is that Judah complained. That's what her prayers amounted to, complaining about her foes and accusing her Lord of, of doing wrong. And you can't read those chapters without getting the sense that she's accusing the Lord of some kind of injustice. And that's why she can't get her prayers through. That's why God's not listening, because she's not owning up to her own rebellion. She says some things from time to time about her sin, but it doesn't really factor into real repentance, genuine weeping and mourning over her sin. But, but the Bible says in verse 26, it's good for one to wait quietly for the Lord to save, for the Lord to come through. You know, um, we all have a lot of so-called saviors 
Um, for some, it's food. When trouble comes and difficulties come, we eat more. Uh, for others, uh, it's television. Um, it's, it's the ways that we medicate ourselves. Some, some of us go to friends, so-called friends, friends who, quote-unquote friends, who will never ask you about deeper things going on in your heart. People who will never challenge you to repent and believe um, the way you should. For some, it's just entertaining and amusing yourself. For others, it's finding some physical, visual, or intellectual pleasure or hobby that takes your mind off of the real issue of repentance and change. And, and really trusting the Lord to save. We have all kinds of false saviors that never deliver. Uh, but like alcohol, like drugs, like video games for some, there, it's just a flash in the pan high that always leaves you dry. In verse 27, the third thing uh, that's good, it says it's good for a man uh, to bear the yoke in his youth. And, and what's going on here is to bear the yoke of God's discipline. You remember in Jeremiah 27, 28, Jeremiah told the people, hey, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, and the best hope you have is to submit to him. This is from the Lord, and you need to submit to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And if you don't, it's going to be trouble for you. And, and Hananiah, the false prophet, uh, he breaks the yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders and preaches peace, peace, peace to everybody. And, and Jeremiah comes back with a word from the Lord that a yoke of iron is coming. And those who don't submit to it are going to be uh, destroyed. And that's exactly what happens. And so when God sets his heart on disciplining you and, and dealing with your sin, through hardships, through afflictions, through sufferings. Uh, Hebrews 12 teaches us, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you like a son. And if you fight against him, if you fight him, you're the one that's going to get hurt. Don't fight God when he disciplines you. It's a good thing to bear that yoke when you're young. And, and what else is going on there is the yoke not only of discipline, but the yoke of obedience. It's a good thing what the lamenter is saying, it's good for you to learn what it's like to be faithful in the covenant with the Lord. The Lord is faithful to you. It's a good thing for you to learn to faithfully respond to God's covenant love by loving him in return. Um, the investment of loving God by the power of the Spirit, because he first loved you in Christ, returns character dividends that are able to withstand the stresses and hardships you experience. Uh, when training for a marathon, um, there is no substitute to getting up every day to train and run to prepare yourself for the race. Sitting around watching Netflix videos and expecting a bottle of Gatorade on the day of the race to give you the upper hand is going to lead you to the bathroom before it ever leads you to the finish line. Are you a procrastinator? 
Are you waiting for the next big thing? Are you expecting to be prepared for that big thing when it comes? God calls you every day in the smallest details to faithfully respond to his grace in Christ. Character growth is developed in those small daily details of life. So when the big events do happen, your growth in grace, your growth in character is accelerated without you being demoralized and your confidence in God annihilated. When the Lord brings discipline, hardship into your life, especially over your sins, it is a good thing to deal with the trials without complaining, but rather be ready to learn whatever lessons the Lord is teaching. In verses 28 through 30, let's read those. Let, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him, that yoke. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Now, there are some hard verses. Um, the lamenter tells Judah and us to sit alone in silence which seems to clearly mean to not allow yourself to be distracted from what the Lord is doing. And don't be quick to complain. Don't complain at all. He talks about putting his mouth in the dust. What Judah did in, verses, in chapter 1 and 2 about complaining against God and accusing God and suggesting that somehow God did wrong, that needs to be silenced. Um, verse 29 says that Judah may yet have hope if she just keeps her mouth shut and pays attention to what the Lord is doing. Verse 30 is a difficult verse for us to handle because it calls you to absorb the insults and the blows, which is a way of saying don't seek vengeance yourself. Don't take matters into your own hands. Vengeance is the Lord's property. It is difficult, is it not, to wait for this? to wait like this for the Lord to do something. Sometimes the Lord's promises seem so far away from being fulfilled. Verses 31 through 33 give us reasons. And these are the central verses in this chapter and the central verses in this book. And again, like verses 25 through 27, which all begin with the same letter, good, these verses, 31 through 33, all begin with the letter for, giving explanation and motivation and foundation as to why do the things that the lamenter is saying to do. Look at verses 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but through, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. These verses are central, and they begin, um, in spite of what the English has translated, they all begin with, in the, in the Hebrew, with the letter for. Um, and it's used to give us the reason why we should call to mind the gospel. 
the reason why we should wait for the Lord, the reason why we should seek His face, the reason why we should wait quietly, the reason why we should bear the yoke of discipline and obedience, the reason why we should sit alone in silence, the reason why we should stop our mouths from complaining, the reason why we should endure suffering and insult without retaliation, first, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Sometimes it seems like the Lord has abandoned his people, but it's not forever. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring rescue. He's going to come and help his people. Second, for though the Lord afflicted, he will have compassion according to his steadfast love. Love is central to God's being. God is love. Someone once said, God is not anger. God is love. It's what his character is about. And his steadfast love never ceases. He delights to show mercy to you. And third, he does not afflict with his whole heart. The Lord restrains his afflictions on his people, but he does not restrain his steadfast love. You notice back in the, again in that passage in Exodus 34, if you read that in verses 5 through 7, there is uh, what can be called a blessed imbalance of his love over against his wrath. Nine promises of God's love are given, nine allusions to his love. And there's only one warning of his rebuke. God overwhelms us with his grace. Verses 34 through 36, it says, To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. These verses teach that the Lord does not approve when he sees injustice especially against his people. But as, um, as his people, so, so we, we have to recognize the fact that God sees injustice. And he, he doesn't just let it skate. It upsets him a lot more than it upsets you. Uh, but in verses 37 through 39, listen, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord, of the Most High, that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? As God's people, verses 37 through 39, teach that whatever happens comes from the Lord's hand. And so you must trust his sovereign plan, his sovereign control, his sovereign supervision over every trouble in your daily life and every trouble that surrounds you. God is still in control. Nothing comes your way unless it is sent by the Lord. And this is one of the truths that allowed Job to bless the Lord in his trials when he was told expressly to curse the Lord and die. Job did not charge the Lord with wrongdoing. 
And how much less should Judah when the Lord was punishing her sins? This is what he says in, in, in verse 39. Why complain if you're being punished or disciplined for your sin? Judah had no complaint against the Lord. She's only getting what she deserves. When the Lord disciplines you for sin, you should never complain. The discipline is a proof that he loves you. It's a proof that he accepts you as his child and as his responsibility. When, when God disciplines you, he is accepting you as his responsibility. He is going to make you more like himself. Discipline is not only um, God's way of growing you up, but it is his way of showing you that he wants you in glory with him forever. He is, by the discipline, refining and preparing you for dwelling with him forever in heaven. Look at verses 40 through 42. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Um, the lamenter is teaching Judah and you, all of us, what, what you must do to align yourself with the Lord. Self-examination, repenting, hoping, praying, confessing, and admitting, interestingly, that these very things have lacked genuineness in our lives. But these are still the things we must commit to. There is no plan B for being restored to the Lord, examining our hearts, repenting of sin, hoping and praying, and knowing that in Christ every spiritual blessing is yours. Every promise of God is sealed to you in Jesus and because of Jesus. And when we repent, God will restore us. When we truly turn our Selves back to him. Verses 43 uh, to the end of the um, chapter are dealing with how the lamenter uh, prays and finally actually hears from the Lord and what the Lord says to him and how he finds confidence once again in him. Let's read these verses, verses 43 through 66. You have, and the lamenter is talking to God now, you have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. 
You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of, of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. These verses, uh, in verse 43 through 45, uh, the lamenter cries out to God and is not heard by him. And he sees how the Lord has shut himself in, but he is still praying. And that teaches you, does it not, to persist in prayer, like Jesus said in Luke 18. The question um, is never, um, will the Lord hear my prayer? The question is, uh, will you uh, repent of sin? Will you continue to pray to him? Um, the question is not, um, is he willing to listen to me, but am I willing to learn from him? And in verses 46 through 48, he, he talks about how he continues to cry out to God and to, to weep over the situation in Judah. And in verse 49 through 51, he continues to pray, to pray and to cry without ceasing, without respite. And verse 50, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. And so you see how he is full of confidence at this point. He is not giving up. He is going to bug and he is going to nag God in prayer until he gets the promises that God made, just like Jacob. I will not let you go until you bless me. And, and just like with Jacob, who had to deal with his sin at that moment, Judah has to deal with her sin. And often that's the case with you and with me, that when we pray and pray, and it seems like the, the prayers don't go past the ceiling, it's often at that point that we have to deal with personal sin. And then the prayer gets through. It's like a floodgate. And, and then you see that happening uh, in, in his life as well. At the end of verse 54, he's all closed off. He's been thrown in a pit. He's lost. But then in verse 55, he continues to pray. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit at the lowest point. And it says in 56, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. It says the Lord came near to him. And the first time God speaks in this book, this is what he says, do not fear. Do not fear. You know, perfect love casts out fear, because fear, the Bible says, has to do with punishment. And, and that punishment, the punishment that you deserved for your sin, for your rebellion, for your idolatry, that punishment was received and absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. He has taken your punishment 
so much so that there is no more condemnation for you. And there is no possibility of you ever being separated from God's love revealed in Jesus Christ. It cannot happen. It's impossible. There's no condemnation and there's no way away from the love of God. Do not fear. The Bible calls us to have faith in a God who loves us in spite of appearances. It didn't look like Jesus was loved by God when he was on the cross, but he certainly was. In verses 58 through 66, he is confident that the Lord has taken up his cause against those who have treated him unjustly, and he looks in faith to God to judge his oppressors himself. More than anyone else, Jesus is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted with grief. He's acquainted, he was acquainted, and is acquainted with your griefs right now. He was acquainted on Calvary with your guilt and with your sin. And he sympathizes with you. He saves all who draw near to God through him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Trust in him. Believe in him. Pray to him. Repent of sin. He always lives to intercede for you. Remember, the question never is, is he willing to save? The question is, am I willing to repent? The question never is, is he willing to listen? The question always is, am I willing to learn from him? God bless and keep you.